Well, today I want to move on the stage in our, in our thinking. We've been thinking about the need of uh, having something to say to modern Britain in the situation in which we find ourselves. We've been thinking about the message, and I've especially focused on the doctrine of salvation. Not that that's uh, everything. I've not, we've not really looked at the whole message. The whole message of the gospel begins with God, his character, his holiness. We stand before God. That's why we have the problems we do, because we're standing before a holy God. We move on to talk about man, by which I mean the human race, how humanity has fallen, how we are born in rebellion and corruption and bondage and guilt. And then we move on to talk about Jesus, how he's the Son of God sent to be our Savior, fully fully God, fully man, coming as the final revelation, coming as the sacrifice for our sins, coming as the King of the universe. And then our faith in him brings us salvation. And that's the thing that I've been uh, focusing on, but it's, it's only past, it's more, the whole plan of God, God and man and sin and judgment, person of Jesus, faith. And then there's the, the outworking of the Christian life. Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So we've been thinking a little bit about the message. But I want to move on a phase and uh, try to think together with you about the preaching of the message. And that's my, my theme at the moment. Let's turn in our Bibles to Romans chapter 10. And I want to read to you from uh, around about verse 15. Romans chapter 10. Let me begin at verse 14. But how are they to call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Now Paul is dealing with, uh, with uh, Israel in the end of Romans chapter 8. He begins with that great climax that we were looking at last night, that nothing can separate the people of God from God's purpose of salvation. They are saved and secure forever. But that leads to a kind of a question. If you really have followed Paul, you might, at the end of Romans chapter 8, you might be asking a question. And the question you might be asking is, well, what about Israel? Because uh, were, were they not in the purpose of God? Did not, did not God promise various uh, blessings of salvation to Israel? And yet, uh, in the day in which Paul was writing, around about the AD 50s, Israel have largely fallen out. They have fallen away. What's the point of saying that uh, the people of God can't fall away if the entire nation of Israel have fallen away, or, or the bulk of the nation? So any thinking person would say to himself, well, what about Israel? Didn't, didn't, give prom didn't God give promises to Israel? And so what Paul is doing in Romans 9, 10, and 11 is partly solving a problem. You, you would ask that question if you have a, uh, an intelligent mind and you're thinking about these things. But also, people were very puzzled about the Apostle Paul. He spent all his time preaching to Gentiles. How comes this man who's so Jewish uh, spends all of his time preaching to Gentiles uh, and scarcely uh, goes to, he doesn't go to Israel or Jerusalem very much. He spends his time wandering around the Mediterranean area. So people were puzzled at uh, why the gospel was promised to Israel and yet it didn't work out and uh, it seems as though the purpose of God has fallen aside. The one thing that Paul has said cannot happen, that the purpose of God is abandoned, seems to be abandoned in the case of Israel. So that's why 
Paul has to move from Romans 8 to Romans 9 and 11. And he gives four answers. He says four things. And uh, we are focusing on the second. But his first answer is, well, not all are Israel just because they descend from Israel. God never ever promised to give salvation to every single member of the Jewish people. And, all, and even in the history of Israel, there was always... Uh, some, there were always some who believed and some who did not. And uh, if you look at the case of Abraham, Ishmael wanders far from the Lord, but Isaac is the one through whom the promise of salvation goes. When you look at Isaac's children, Esau, he wanders off somewhere and uh, there's no real future in his line. Jacob have I loved. It's never, it's never that uh, the whole descendants coming out of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, that they're all saved and the whole people of of Israel are, are saved and regenerate and can't lose their salvation. That was never true. It's never true. Not all are Israel, the true believing people of God, just because they descend from Israel. It's not the nation that God promises will never lose their salvation. It's those who've come to faith within the nation. and They do not lose their salvation. So that's his first answer. His second answer, which is a complete change of gear, he moves from the plan of God to the responsibility of man. There's no sense of contradiction. He moves from predestination to responsibility with no sense that he's contradicting himself. This is part of the Bible's teaching about predestination. It's a mystery. It fits in with human responsibility. If you ask, how does it fit in? The answer is, I don't think we know. I don't think anybody knows how we can be responsible, and yet God gets his will done. Who is doing it, God or man? Well, the Bible teaches both of those things. And if you can't uh, reconcile them, well, so be it. Just, it just shows we're not as clever as we'd like to be. Uh, <laughs> you remember what Joseph said? He said, you meant it for evil. You, you, you sold me as a slave and you made money out of me, wanted to kill me. You meant it for evil. God meant it for good. The very same thing that they were doing willingly and freely was actually in God's plan to, to send Joseph to Egypt to be the one who would want, who'd keep the nation alive by providing food for them in days of famine. So they had their plans, God had his plan. They were willingly doing what they were wanting to do, but God was achieving his will, they were not achieving their will. Uh, this, this is the teaching. The greatest example is the cross. And in Acts chapter 2, Paul says, Peter says, by the hands of wicked men, you handed him over, you, you, you were being wicked. And they cry out, oh yeah, what, what, what should we do? And they're alarmed at what they've done. Yet he also says, that Jesus is delivered up by the definite foreknowledge and counsel of God. It was the plan of salvation. It, it, it could not happen. Uh, the teaching is that God controls our freedom in such a way that it does his will, not our will. We do what we do willingly and voluntarily. No one's forcing us to sin. No one's forcing us to believe. There's no, no psychological or physical compulsion in, in coming to faith. And yes, mysteriously and inexplicably and beyond our understanding, God is getting his will done and he's bringing in his people, those who were ordained to eternal life, those are the people who believe. He gets, he gets his elect to be saved. So he moves from Romans 9 to Romans 10 with no sense of contradiction, starts talking about prayer and preaching and praying. He's not feeling that he's contradicting himself, he's just moving to the other side of the matter. So his second answer is, well, Israel didn't get saved because they stumbled and didn't come to salvation by way of faith. They were seeking their own righteousness. 
And because they sought their own righteousness, they stumbled at the cross and uh, wouldn't submit to God's way of giving us righteousness. And they, they, they heard the gospel. God made arrangements for them to hear the gospel. He sent preachers to them and so on. That's the second answer. And that's the one we'll look at in a moment. The third answer is God doesn't hate Israel because there are Jews who are saved, including Paul. Paul says, well, I'm, I'm, a, I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. He says, well, I'm saved. You can't say God's against Israel. And the fourth answer is the story is not over yet. God's reaching the nations, and one day the fullness of the Gentiles will come in, and eventually even, even physical, national Israel will experience revival and will come to faith, and so all Israel will be saved, and, and uh, there'll be a change in the future history of the world. And I'm concerned about this bit in the middle where Paul says, well, did, did they not get a chance to believe? Did they, not, did they not hear? And the answer is, well, no, God sent them preachers. He sent preachers to them. And uh, it's this bit about preaching and preachers that he's dealing with in chapter 10. And so he says, well, how can they, how can they believe? Well, God sent them preachers. That's how they get to, to believe. Verse 15 then, how are they to preach? These people, how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they, the Jews, have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing. Uh, And the word hearing there doesn't just mean noise going into the ears. It, It means hearing in the heart, responding, heeding. Faith comes when God is so working that you're hearing what, truly hearing, what God is saying to you. And this hearing comes from the word of Christ. It comes when Jesus himself is, as it were, the preacher. He's speaking, he's piercing your hearts, and you're hearing. Faith comes by hearing. And you must sort of underline that word, or put it in bold letters. And hearing, this kind of hearing comes through the word of Christ. It comes when Christ is, is the preacher. But I ask, have they, have they not heard? Did, did they not hear the gospel? And the answer is, yes, they have. The, the, their voice has gone out through all the earth and so on. And then at the end of the chapter, verse 21, Isaiah predicted, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. The problem is not that uh, God was being unfaithful. He was sending his message. He was sending preachers. That the, the word was going out everywhere. The whole of the uh, synagogues of Europe heard about this Savior, but they would not respond in faith, and they stumbled at the cross, and so on. So that's the point of the chapter as a whole. But I'm concerned about Paul's remarks about preaching. God's way of getting this message out is, is to send out preachers. And I want us to focus on this this morning. First of all, what does the word preach mean? Well, there are, there are different words in the New Testament Greek language, the first century Greek language. There are different words which we often translate preach. The main one, and it's the one that's used here, and it's the one I'm I'm commenting on, is a word that means to proclaim or to herald or to be a kind of official spokesman of a king. It's the kind of word that would be used in the first century when Caesar sent out some proclamation from the the Roman government and there'd be some announcement and some official, some crier, some herald, that's the word, that they would use. Some herald comes and says, Caesar has said, this is the announcement from the palace. 
Uh, that's, that's the kind of word that Christians took up on when we translate it preach. But it means proclaim. It means make an official announcement coming from the king and, and announcing a piece of news. That's the meaning of the word preach. There are other words. Um, I always find uh, Acts chapter 8 interesting in this connection because in Acts chapter 8 we read that the Christians of Jerusalem were scattered and they go everywhere. Those who were scattered went everywhere, all over the, uh, the continent of Europe. And they went everywhere preaching the word. Only, only the Greek word there is not the word uh, to make, to make an, an official proclamation. It's uh, a word that just means to spread good news. And it's being used of the common people, the common people of Jerusalem, the Christians, the ordinary people, uh, were scattered everywhere. But they went everywhere chatting and gossiping and just talking about the good news, spreading the good news. But, but many of our translations, including the ESV that I have here, and I think it's in the King James, many of our translations use the word preaching. They went everywhere preaching. But it's not an official word. It's not a word of a, an official announcer. It's a word that just means to speak or to gossip or to, to spread some, some good news that everybody hears about it. Very ordinary sort of word. So the ordinary people, they go everywhere chatting and gossiping and just telling, well, we've come from Jerusalem. Why? Why have you come from Jerusalem? Well, there's a persecution there. What sort of persecution? Well, you know, let me tell you about Jesus. And they went everywhere just, just chatting and talking to everybody. And the gospel went everywhere as a result of this persecution. But it's not that preachers with a capital P are going everywhere. It's the ordinary, it's the ordinary people just going everywhere and sharing their story. But then the next verse, it says, but Philip went down to the city of Samaria and he proclaimed to them, he heralded them, he made this official announcement to them concerning the Christ. And that's the word which is the main word in the New Testament for preach. The main word used in the New Testament means to be an official preacher. And Philip's not just any old guy, he's a deacon of the Church of Jerusalem. He obviously was, was gifted and he, he eventually becomes, becomes known as Philip the Evangelist. By the time you get to Acts chapter 20, he's being called an evangelist. So he clearly is a, a kind of official spokesman for the church uh, of Jerusalem. And he's being sent by the church of Jerusalem. He goes around and crowds of people are listening to him. He's, in a, kind of, he's a kind of official preacher. So I think we can put it like this, that there's a difference between a kind of uh, unofficial chit-chatty sort of preaching. We, we often use the word preach that way. You know, I was in the office and I preached Jesus to him. We, we use the word preach that way sometimes. That's all right. But there's a difference between the, the kind of chatty sort of witnessing that we sometimes call preaching or just somebody speaking at church who just uh, gifted any, any person with a, something to say and a little bit of a gift. There's a difference between that and the official preaching of the church, the officials of the church. They have to be sent. We're just about to look at the, the scriptures that says, how can they preach unless they be sent? Uh, they are the, the official preachers. And I'm concerned this morning, not just with our kind of general testimony, that's a good thing, and I could speak about that as well, but uh, that's not my topic. My topic is this official preaching, this ordained way that God has of spreading his gospel. He appoints preachers. He sends out preachers. These Jews, they stumbled at the gospel. Was it God's fault? Did God, as it were, not get the message through? Oh, no. God sent preachers, and they went all over the European world. They went to all the places where the Jews were, and they began at the synagogues. They always began going to the, the synagogues and said, well, the message is really for you. And then if they wouldn't have it, they would say, well, since you thrust the gospel from you, well, well, then we'll go to the Gentiles. 
that they would make sure first that the, the people to whom the gospel was promised, that they would hear it first, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. That phrase comes in the New Testament. And so God's way of uh, reaching the world is to send preachers from, <coughs> from his churches. And uh, I'm referring to something a bit official. I'm not just referring to general witness and general joyful Christian gossip where we chat about the Lord Jesus. I'm referring to something that's, that's official and God-ordained in a very special way. You may say, do we need to talk about preachers generally? I've, I've thought about this a lot. I think most of my life I've never tried to talk about preaching to, to ordinary congregations. Sometimes I talk about preaching to preachers. But I, I've changed my mind. I've, just, I've, I've uh, changed my ways in that respect. I've come to the conclusion everybody needs to know what preaching is. People who are not preachers need to know what preaching is as much as preachers need to know what preaching is because they need to know what to expect. They need to know what the pastors and the elders and the, their, their leaders really are. We all need to know what, what preaching is because otherwise we have a wrong view of, of our leaders. We, get, we, we regard them as a, maybe just comforters. They, they come and have a cup of tea with us when we're sick and they, and they cheer us up and they counsel us a little bit and they, they, they run people, the church and they collect people from the airport and they, they do all these things. That's not really what a preacher is. A preacher is a person with one specific uh, work laid upon him of proclaiming officially. Some, someone somewhere has got to be a kind of official spokesman for the gospel message and that is given to the people we call preachers. And uh, we all need to know what such people are. And they are trainers. They train the people for works of ministry. We, we call them ministers sometimes, but it's, a, it's not a very good uh, language because in the Bible, the ministers are the people. If you, if you have a church with 500, it's got 500 ministers. Uh, it may only have one or two preacher trainers, but uh, the ministers are, are, is, is everybody. Um, the minister is not the guy that stands up on a Sunday morning doing the preaching. Or that, that, he ought not to be called the minister. He's the trainer of the ministers. The ministers are the people. He trains the people for works of ministry, works of service. And uh, I, I come from Crisco, as you know, uh, as you've heard, and I have to say I like our name. It wasn't me that chose it, but uh, I like it. Christ's Co-workers Fellowship. That's exactly what a church is. It's a fellowship of co-workers. Uh, I like our name. I, I wasn't the one that chose it, but I like it. We are a team of co-workers. When somebody joins Crisco, as they're joining, if they want to join us, we say, well, what are you coming in to do? Are you going to be a hospital visitor? Are you going to be uh, looking after the children? Are you going to be evangelists on the streets? You know, what, what you, if you're coming in to be a, one of the co-workers, what bit of the work do you want to come into? And if they say, oh, no, no, no I, you know, I just want to be looked after and I want to hear the, the preaching, I want to be there on the Sundays, they'll say, well, there's plenty of churches where you can get that, but that's not what we are. Uh, God bless you, you can come, but uh, if you wish to become one of our team, you want one of, one of the fellowship, we are a co-workers fellowship. Uh, and we don't encourage people to join us unless they come in as co-workers. But, um, but this is the New Testament picture, surely, that, that the, the preachers are trainers of the whole people. They train them with the message. They should be a good example to them. They train them in life. They train them. They should, uh, one reason why they should be preaching evangelistically, <coughs> 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 
is so that the people can see a model of someone speaking evangelistically. I mean, we, we preachers are always telling people to witness and save all their neighbors. Yet, surely, if we preachers do that, we ought to give people models of how they do it. And they ought to hear us dealing with the world and, and, and showing how, how to uh, get through to the world. We ought to, ought to be examples of that, surely, among, amongst other things. Well, this is God's way, that God specially calls such people. Now, let's look at the details. First of all, uh, preachers are commissions. They, you're not a preacher unless you have a, a kind of commission from God. And Paul says, well, how can they hear unless something takes place in their hearts? How does this hearing in the heart take place? Well, it come, takes place by preaching. <coughs> how, how shall they preach unless they be sent? There has to be a sending. And when you study your Bible, you will find every major servant of God in the Scriptures is, is sent. Have you ever noticed there are no volunteers in the Bible? Have you noticed that? No one ever says, well, you know, I, I, think, I think I'd like to be a, a prophet. No one ever volunteers. Uh, in fact, none of them want the job. Have you ever noticed that? Every time God comes to a prophet, they always say no. Uh, they come to Jeremiah, God comes to Jeremiah, Jeremiah, I'm sending you to the nations. He said, no, no, Lord, you know, I'm too young, I'm too young. God comes to Moses and says, I'm sending you to rescue Israel. Moses says, well, I'm not a speaker, not been very effective. I tried that 40 years ago and it didn't work. And I don't even know what your name means. He, he, no, please send somebody else. He's, he's not in the least bit interested in this call. Uh, he was 40 years earlier. 40 years earlier, he thought, I'm, I'm going to rescue Israel. And when he was doing it that way, it didn't work. He was a total failure. He had to run for his life. Now, that was 40 years ago. Now, God really is sending him. And God says, I am sending you. And this time, Moses doesn't want him. Or, or think of, of Joshua. God, God will always come to somebody somewhere and send him and, and make it quite clear to him that this is his will. Joshua chapter 1, verse 6. Be strong and be courageous because you are going to cause this people to inherit the land. I'm, I'm sending you. <coughs> <coughs> or judges, remember how God comes to these various men in the book of Judges, these greater warriors who were raised up to rescue Israel. You always find the same thing. The Lord comes to Gideon. He says, you go, hail you mighty man of valor. You go and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do I, am I not sending you? The judges. Gideon's not very enthusiastic. He says, well, I'm, I'm just the least of my tribe. I come from the tribe of Manasseh. I'm going, Manasseh's not terribly important. How are you sending me? God says, yes, I am. Look at the others. Samuel, he's chosen as a little boy, very young. <coughs> Sorry, I'm struggling with my voice this morning. He's uh, only a child when God steps into his life. He's four years old when God calls him. Or think of David. He's out in the bush somewhere looking after the sheep, and Samuel is told to go and find the next king. And all these, these uh, sons of Jesse are brought before him. And Samuel says, no, he's, he's, not, he's none of these. Do you have any other son? And Jesse says, well, yeah, I've got one more. doesn't even mention his name. I've got one more. Is that some kid out in the bush somewhere? You, you won't want him. You won't want him. Samuel says, we're going to stay here. Go and get him. 
and they get Samuel. And Samuel, they get David, and Samuel anoints him, and the Spirit of God comes down upon him and rests upon him from that day forward. He, this little boy is going to be the next king. But again, he's not volunteering, nobody's even thinking of it. He's out in the bush playing his guitar and looking after the sheep. But uh, God is choosing this little boy, David. Think of Elisha, Elijah, think of uh, Amos. Amos was a a tender of trees. He, he said, I, I, was a, I was a keeper of sycamore trees. I wasn't a prophet. I wasn't the son of a prophet. I wasn't in, in training to be a prophet. Amos chapter 7. But the Lord said to me, go prophesy to my people. Amos chapter 7, verse 14. Think of uh, Jeremiah. Think of Isaiah. Think of uh, Ezekiel. He falls on his face as one dead when God comes to speak to him to send him. Think of Hosea. He has a bad marriage, but even his bad marriage is going to be used in his calling. It's going to help him to understand the faithfulness of God to Israel, whom he loves so much. Think of John the Baptist, think of Jesus himself. (coughs) Even Jesus did not volunteer to be our saviour. God sent his son, says the Bible. Even Jesus, he takes not the honour upon himself, says Hebrews chapter 5. But but it's said to him, you are a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Even Jesus didn't volunteer. He sent, and God says, well, I'm appointing you to be the high priest. Think of the 12. Peter says, no, Lord, depart from me. I'm a wicked man. I don't think I can really work for you in this way. Think of Paul. He, he wasn't volunteering to be an apostle when he was going down that Damascus road. There is no occasion in Scripture of anybody, as it were, volunteering in each case, God steps into someone's life and demands that he be something special in uh, an, an official position within the Church of Jesus Christ in its Old Testament or New Testament form. The nearest to a volunteer would be Isaiah. Isaiah said, Lord, here am I. That's the nearest to a volunteer. But even, even in Isaiah, it's not, Lord, here am I, I'll go. It's, Lord, here am I, send me. Even Isaiah is not wanting to go unless he knows that God is sending him. That's about the nearest you get to a a volunteer anywhere in Scripture. So preachers are people who have no choice. They are called by God, and the the call of God comes upon their life. What, What are the marks of being called by God into this work? Well, it's when God makes his will plain to you that this is his purpose for your life. It normally begins with a sense of burden. You have a a kind of burden for uh, the work of God. You can see what people need and you you wish you could help them. You've got a concern for them. Very often you're praying that God will do something and the Lord says, well, I'm glad you're praying because I'm sending you. Uh, And you remember when Jesus tells the Apostles to pray that the Lord of the harvest will thrust out workers into the harvest. In the next chapter, he sends them out. Uh, they, they, they're there to pray. And the Lord says, well, I'm glad you're praying. Actually, I'm sending you. And the, the, their praying is getting ready for them to be sent. In other words, you have a kind of burden. You can feel well, there's a need that people go out there and do something for God. And you, you have a sense of a, of a, of burden. The, the New Testament, the, the Old Testament uses that phrase, the burden of the Lord. Remember that phrase in the... Old Testament prophets. And then you have a feeling that you could do something about it. You have a certain uh, 
uh, knowledge that actually you could do something. And uh, maybe more than others. You have a certain gift, you have a certain anointing. You, you know that you can actually do something in a situation. Maybe you have a, a gift of clarity when, when others don't. And you, you, you have a, a sense that you could do this, nobody else is doing it. And you can see this, this situation, you're burdened about it, you want to do this, there's a kind of desire there. Um, a sense of gifting, a sense of call. And then there's a sense of compulsion. There is the feeling that you will be sinning if you do not do this. Remember how Paul says, woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. Um, I remember something that happened to me years ago. I, I went out to Africa not to be a preacher. I went out for, to work for the Zambian government and uh, worked for the Ministry of Education in Zambia and was quite, in, quite enjoying myself. And then various things happened. I won't go into all of the details, but uh, I ended up pastor of Lusaka Baptist Church, which totally surprised me. I wasn't really uh, wanting that. And I was there for a little while, and then I had some kind of clash with the government, and I had to leave Zambia. And uh, I, wasn't, I wasn't quite sure whether my calling was uh, forever or whether I'd just been called for a couple of years to help this church. I wasn't quite sure. And I was back here in Britain, and I started looking for a job, and... Uh, one day, I had an interview. I was about to have an interview with the uh, VSO, Volunteer Service Overseas. And I was going up to London on the train. And as I was going up on the train for an interview for this job, it was as if the Lord was speaking to me. And the Lord said to me, you know, what are you doing on this train? And I said, oh, Lord, I, I, want, I need a job. <laughs> and the Lord said to me, what, what for? And I said, well, I need some money. And this kind of conversation was going on between me and the Lord, you know. And the Lord said to me, I, mean, it, it, like, I won't say it was a conversation, but it was like a conversation. And the Lord said to me, you know, I thought I called you to preach. And I said, I said yeah, Lord, but, but at the moment I don't have a pastor and I've got no job and I'm broke. And anyway, this kind of dialogue between me and the Lord was, was going on as I was going up to the train to London. By the time I got to London, I didn't want the job. By the time I went to the interview, I didn't even want the job anyway. And I knew the Lord was uh, not releasing me. And actually, uh, I went out bought a brand new car. The only, only time in my life I've ever bought a brand new car. I went and bought out a new Renault 4 on, 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 the, on the Never Never, on the, on the higher purchase system. And I was praying the guy wouldn't ask me what my job was because I didn't have a job. If he, the guy had said, how are you going to pay for these installments? I don't know what I would have said. And, uh, and the Lord uh, helped me to get a brand new car. And all sorts of things happened. The Lord just uh, provided for me. And I spent uh, 10 months in this country just preaching every single Sunday everywhere. And... Uh, I had a strange word of prophecy. When I left Zambia, some lady came to me and said, uh, no, no, a man, two people came, one of the comments was a man. A man came to me and said, uh, I really have got something to say to you from the Lord. And I don't always take notice of these crazy guys with words from the Lord. From the Lord. But uh, on this particular occasion, I felt the Lord was telling me to listen. <laughs> and I did. He said, when you get to England, you'll have all sorts of offers. You mustn't take any of them. He says, there's one coming that's right, and you have to wait for it. And uh, I don't listen, normally listen to these things. People are always giving you guidance from God. Normally, you're going to be rich any moment now. That one's not fulfilled yet. I'm still waiting for that one. <laughs> but uh, on this particular occasion, I really felt the Lord was saying, you better listen to this. This is from me. And so I took it seriously. And I had all, all these kind of offers, and uh, RT wanted me to be at Westminster with him, and, and Eden 
Chapel, Cambridge, where all the university students go, and Knight and Leicester next to IVP. All these famous churches wanted me to be their pastor, and I said no to the whole lot. I wouldn't say yes to anybody because of this kind of word I had. And one day I was praying. It's a long story, but uh, I was praying, and I could hear downstairs two two letters coming through the letterbox. He took no notice, he just carried on praying. But uh, after my wife and I had been praying, we went down, and there were two letters. I'd been writing my first book. First letter said, your book is accepted. The second letter said, please come to be the pastor of another Baptist church. And I knew that that was the right one. That was the one that I was waiting for. But, he, but here's the, the point I'm making is, I was ready just to go back into secular work. I, I, I uh, didn't get much money as a preacher and I, could, I was needing a job. And uh, I, I thought, well, is, can, I, can I go back to ordinary life now? Uh, but the Lord said, now you have the sense of compulsion. You have the sense of woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. You have no choice. Charles Spurgeon used to say to people coming to Spurgeon's college and wanting to be preachers, Spurgeon used to say to them, if you can do anything but preach, do it. What he, what he meant by that is, if you can, with a clear conscience, go do something else, then go and do it. You, you, we only want you here. His point was, we only want you here if you know you can do nothing else. You must do this. If you can do anything else, do it. It was, was uh, Spurgeon's advice to, to people consulting him in this particular way. So how can you preach in this sense of herald and proclaim the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ? How can you preach unless you be sent in some way? There has to be this sending. And so this, this is what it means. It's a beautiful work. It's a wonderful work. And Paul says, he quotes Isaiah, Isaiah 52, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of him who proclaims good tidings. That comes from Isaiah 52. But it's a picture of a, a messenger coming, running over the hills and uh, when you're a preacher, you wouldn't, you wouldn't know this. When you're a preacher, you have to take care of your feet. Did you know that? <laughs> you're standing on your feet all the time. Sometimes you're walking. If you're in some strange country, you, you, uh, you, uh, you, you're walking out in the bush maybe a lot. I remember something happened to me many years ago. I was uh, wondering whether I should go to India. And I thought, no, I don't think I want to go to India. Everyone goes to India. So uh, I, don't, I don't think I'll just join the club. They can get on with India. I'll, I'll stay in Kenya. So I was deciding not to go to India, but I was thinking about it. And uh, I was in a certain meeting in Newport News, Virginia, America. And I was in a service, and, and it had been a long service. It had lasted for seven hours. I'd already preached for an hour, and people were ordaining people. It was going on. I was tired. And uh, so I, I sat, at, I just went to the back of the hall, and I just sat down and let the guy... Um, I let the guy who was leaving service carry on. And I was just sort of relaxing and resting and opting out for a few minutes and taking a rest in the service. And I wasn't taking any notice of the service. I wasn't, I wasn't even participating. I was just resting for a bit, sitting on the chair at the back. And as I was sitting there at the back of the service, I was thinking about India. Should I go to India? You know, uh, uh, I get a bit of gout sometimes in the hot weather in India. I was just thinking about India. And suddenly I heard the, the pastor leading the service say, I want Pastor Eaton to come here. And I sort of woke up and... and uh, realized he was talking about me, and he said, I want him to come sit in this chair. And I want him to take his shoes and socks off because I'm going to pray for his feet because God has told me he's going to go to India. 
and India is a very hot place. I had told nobody that I was thinking about India. But uh, he uh, said, no, I want to pray for his feet, he said, <laughs> because India is a hot place and you have to do lots of walking. And uh, a few months later, I got a telephone call from somebody in India. Would you ever come to preach in India? And I said, yes. And six months, I was preaching, I was preaching in India. But um, uh, my, my word is feet. How beautiful are the feet? When, when you're preaching, you're standing on your feet all the time. You're walking all over the place. You get weary in feet. And uh, sometimes you, you, you might think, well, these feet of mine, they're, they're still sick. Isaiah says, how beautiful are the feet. They're, they're beautiful in the eyes of God. Because you're going, you're, you're walking somewhere with a joyous, wonderful message. How beautiful. Here's a guy leaping over the hills, running, excitement, coming to bring you a great message. How, how beautiful are the feet of this person leaping over the hills, coming to tell you something great. It's a great piece of news that he's about to tell you. How beautiful on the mountains, says Isaiah, of, of him who comes leaping over the hills in order to uh, bring you good news. And Paul quotes that. Uh, how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news, who proclaim a message of, of joyful and good news. It's a very beautiful work. It's a work of high honor, says the Apostle Paul. It's, it's beautiful in the eyes of God. That the people may not uh, think much of preachers, but God does. This, this task of sharing the good news of Jesus is a beautiful work. It's a message of great joy that those who preach good news, you're not a proper preacher, you're not really preaching unless your message is good news. The gospel is good news, don't you know about that? Unless people go out rejoicing, unless they go out encouraged, unless they go out thinking God is great, you're not preaching the gospel. Religion is bad news. Law is bad news. Morality is bad news. Not anything wrong with morality, but there's a lot wrong with us. And you come and say, well, you've got to be good. You must, you must obey. You must do this. And uh, don't sin. And, and they, just, they just have a moralistic message. You feel very depressed at the end of it all. Or come to church and do this, do this ritual and this ceremony. It's all very boring. Religion is boring and oppressive and burdensome. And if we ever preach in a way that's boring or oppressive or burdensome, then we're not preaching the gospel. Because the gospel is good news. It's a message of forgiveness, it's a message of grace, it's a message of God's faithfulness to us. If you don't go out rejoicing, you, then you've not heard the message properly. That, or the preacher's not preaching it properly. The gospel message is basically good news. Every religion is bad news. Islam just tells you to obey, and all this is the will of Allah, and Hindus tell you this, and everything's oppressive and boring and heavy. It's only the gospel which is good news. The gospel says you're saved by doing nothing. God's done everything for you. He's lived for you. He's died for you. He'll save you by grace. It's the only message which is good news. The gospel message gets us rejoicing. It's encouraging. If it doesn't, well, there's something wrong with us. And in the work of preaching, Christ is the preacher. How shall they hear uh, unless there's a preaching and what is really happening is they're hearing. Faith is coming from hearing. But this hearing is coming because it's the word of Christ. And, and I think Paul's choosing his word. He doesn't say the word of God. He says the word of Christ. In other words, when there's true preaching, Christ himself is the preacher. What's coming through you is coming from the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe some man, he's got some little gift maybe. <coughs> but that's not, he's not really the preacher. The real preacher is Christ. Don't you remember what Paul says to the Ephesians? I think, I think you read it and don't even notice it. But Paul says, he came to, you were aliens and you were separated from the 
Commonwealth of Israel, you had no hope, but uh, you have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And uh, it says in Ephesians 2.17, and he came, he came, and he preached peace to you, you Gentiles, who were far off. And you can read that without even noticing it. But if you read it observantly, your question is, when did Jesus go to Ephesus? He came and he preached. When did Jesus go to Ephesus? In the preaching of the Apostle Paul, Jesus was preaching. He came to Ephesus. Not that Jesus ever went outside Israel. But uh, Paul says, he came. He came. And he preached to you, you Gentiles in Ephesus who are far away from the kingdom of God, outside of the commonwealth of Israel. He came and he preached peace to you who were afar off. When did Jesus come to Ephesus? Answer, in the preaching of the gospel. When Paul went to Ephesus and preached, Jesus was there. He was preaching. When there's true preaching, Jesus is the preacher. He, as it were, takes over. Sometimes very literally takes over. Sometimes you, you, you are preaching and you, you are led in a totally different way, or you throw out some random remark you, you hardly even thought of saying, and that, it's that very remark which pierces somebody's heart, uh, and uh, you come away and you, you feel, sometimes when you're preaching, you feel that you weren't preaching at all, you were just listening to the preaching, someone, someone was preaching and you were watching him, as though Jesus is the preacher and you're watching him, it, preaching sometimes feels like that, sometimes it feels that you're just an observer watching somebody else preach. When the Holy Spirit comes down, the preachers are transformed because Jesus, as it were, takes over, starts doing the preaching. And you're just, as it were, watching. Sometimes you're saying things which you had not planned to say. And uh, there's something prophetic in it. Preaching at its greatest is when Jesus comes and takes over. And he is the preacher. And, And faith comes when it's the word of Christ. How do they hear in their hearts. They hear in their hearts when Christ is the one doing the speaking. And it pierces their hearts. That is the work of preaching. Well, I'm concerned with working this out. So, the great uh, task of reaching Britain is the task of, of ordinary witnessing by Christians who are, who are to be rejoicing and so on. But, but a leading aspect of all of that is the work of the preaching ministry. And we, we are to preach people into joy. We are to preach people into power and liberty. And uh, we preachers, we should never complain at the people. If, if the people are not good enough, we should blame ourselves. It is our job to enliven them and inspire them and move them. Don't ever, if you're a preacher, don't ever criticize the people. If you do, you're criticizing yourself. It's your job to change the people. Don't, don't uh, criticize the people. And uh, it's our job to preach people into joy. Remember how Paul says to the Corinthians, he says, he says, we are workers with you, we're workers together with you for your joy. To Corinthians chapter 1 at the end of that section, he says, we're not lording it over your faith. We're not people who go around telling you what to do. We're not lording it over you as though you're our junior employees. No, we're working with you for your joy. We're getting you to rejoice. We're not your bosses and your kings. We're working with you, getting you to rejoice. We are workers with you for your joy. For you stand firm in your own faith. We're not dictators or bosses. And we're not, but we're not slaves either. But uh, we're free, and we're in the Holy Spirit. So the task of a, a preacher is to, is to get people rejoicing. And the great need in, in modern Britain is, first of all, for the people to be rejoicing, the people of God to be rejoicing. 
Britain will never change. Here we are choosing a new election, a new government and the election and all of that. But actually, countries are not determined by political parties or the politicians or the leaders. If, if, if they are, then we're all in trouble. No, no, the state of a, a country is determined by the church. The state of the church determines the state of a country, where the people of God are rejoicing. The common people hear him gladly. They have favor with all of the people, as Acts chapter 2 or 3 says, after the day of Pentecost. Everybody says, well, these people have got something. I've been talking about India a little bit, and uh, how people in, in India are so scared that, uh, that India might become a Christian country. And uh, I remember reading in another Hindu newspaper at the time of persecution, someone who wrote a letter to the newspaper, and the, the letter went like this, why are we persecuting these people? These are the very people India needs. You know, they, were, they were so sort of rejoicing, and you, 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 you kill them, they start praying for you, you, you rob them of their, of their property, and, they, and the more you rob them, the more they pray for you, the more they love you. Uh, and, and that's not quite what you were expecting. Uh, and finally, you think, well, you know, these people, they, they, we persecute them, but they love us so much. And finally, you start admiring them. Finally, you say, why are we persecuting these people? These are the people we need. And it has a kind of impact upon the country. Our task as preachers is to get the people of God to be rejoicing, praying for their enemies, everybody, everybody loving each other. Everyone say, well, see how these Christians, see how these Christians love each other. These Christians, they've got something we've not got. And people begin to admire you and, and hunger for what you've got. That's the secret of reaching the country. Ah, but then it's also in the hands of the preachers. The preachers are, are the leaders in this, and when there's revival, the first people that have to be revived are the preachers. There's no revival unless the preachers are revived. And when revival comes, the preachers change, and they change, as I said yesterday, they change in two ways. They change in what they preach, and they start changing in how they preach. They change in their message. They stop preaching politics or morality, all these things, interesting topics. They start zeroing in on the centralities of the gospel. They start preaching about God and sin and judgment and heaven and hell, the blood of Christ, the new births, the power of the Holy Spirit. They, they, week after week after week, they are majoring upon the center and the heart of the gospel. Most preachers don't do that. But when revival comes, that's the first thing that happens. The, the very content of the preaching changes. And then the manner of the preaching changes. They're not just giving lectures or nice, interesting monologues from reading something. No, they come alive, and they start, they, there's a burden upon their heart, and they, they want to touch the people, and there's a, a new kind of freedom, a new kind of power. They change in their content, and they change in their style. And God begins to reach the nations. Well, so I, I'm coming on then to deal with the subject of evangelism, and uh, I want to put it to you a little bit uh, historically, because I hold the view that evangelism has gone astray. That, um, that in the last couple of hundred years, in the, whole, in the total story of the church, we have started going our own way, and we're not doing what the church has done. The churches, the gospel churches have done down the centuries. And it really all goes back to a man called Charles Finney. And modern evangelism was pioneered and invented really, by, this, by the man whose name is Charles Finney. Now, now, here's the story. In America, at the end of the 18th century, there were great revivals still going on. I heard, you heard me say the other day that uh, 
the 18th century was a great century of revivals, especially in America, even, even more in America than in Britain. And those revivals went on and on and on and on. Every, every few years there would be these amazing outpourings of the Spirit, and it, it transformed America. The reason why, to this day, America is known as a fairly Christian country, and, and hundreds and thousands go to church. Uh, the much higher proportion of the population are churchgoers and will call themselves Christians than in Britain. But the reason for that is the, what's called the Second Evangelical Awakening. These events of the uh, late 18th century and part of the 19th century, when there were great outpourings of the Spirit in, in Kentucky and, and other parts of America. And so there were many revivals going on, and, and they were going on right up, up until about the 1820s. It began back, it went all the way through the 18th century. It was still continuing in the beginning of the 19th century, and it continued to about 1820, I think, or I think I could say 1825. Um, but some, somewhere towards the end of that period, a man by the name of Charles Finney was saved, and uh, he was baptized with the Spirit, no, no doubt about that, and uh, he was a great and powerful man. But almost immediately, he began preaching. And he was a man with a very strong personality. He was a lawyer by training, although he, he never went into law because he almost immediately went into preaching. But he was trained as a lawyer, and uh, he began to preach, and, and he was quite successful for a few years. But uh, this man, Charles Finney, <coughs> he had a, a particular doctrine. He wasn't following the main Christian teaching of the 18th century. He wasn't believing the sort of things that Wesley and Whitfield and Jonathan Edwards believed. He had his own doctrine, and he had a very extreme doctrine of free will. Uh, theologically, he, he was what theologians call a, a semi-Pelagian. Uh, Pelagius was the heretic in the early church who said, we didn't need grace, we just, we just uh, save ourselves. And the early church condemned Pelagianism and said, no, no, we, you can't be saved except by God's grace. The grace defender of grace was Augustine. And in the story of the Christian church, Pelagius and Augustine, one of the great stories of the Christian church. But then when Pelagianism was put out in, in the early church, there came, there came a kind of variant of it, which we call semi-Pelagian, which is that we really save ourselves, but God helps us a bit. It's not that we totally save ourselves. God is giving us a little bit of help, but with a bit of God's help, we save ourselves. And that's is what is called semi-Pelagianism. Um, and Charles Finney was the semi-Pelagian. He had a very strong doctrine of free will. He didn't regard conversion as really miraculous. It wasn't a kind of miracle of grace. It was just uh, obeying God and responding to God. Um, and he changed the, the nature of preaching. He changed the nature of evangelism. And he changed... The, the, the nature of revival. The word revival began to uh, take on a different meaning. We, uh, uh, with Anton Helen this morning, we were looking at a little advert of some guy here uh, advertising a revival. Come to this revival. Some, someone out here is advertising that. What he means is, uh, come to this evangelistic endeavor. That's what he means. But he's calling it revival, you see. That goes back to Finney. It was Finney who started using the word revival to mean, well, I'm holding a crusade, I'm, I'm holding special meetings, you come. We're holding a revival. That phrase, holding a revival, began with Charles Finney. Nobody used that language before Finney. But for Charles Finney, 
Revival wasn't what it was for Wesley and Whitfield and these early uh, great men of God. For them, revival was God's moving in power, God's coming down and doing the impossible and changing whole nations. And they would do nothing. They'd just say, I'm preaching next week. It's all they would do. And they'd go somewhere and preach, and God would move in great power, and maybe thousands would come to hear, hear them. But revival was very much an act of God. But Finney changed all that. He had this very extreme doctrine of free will. And his idea of, um, of evangelism was that you could really save yourself. You made your decision. The word decision came into Christian vocabulary at that point. Nobody used the word decision before about the 1820s. He started using the word decision. You surrender to God. You give your life to Christ. Nobody ever used those words until the 1820s. He is really saying you save yourself. You, you save yourself by you make your decision. You surrender to God and you have extreme free will. You can do this. You do it. And you, you have a, a, preaching becomes a kind of battle of wills with the preacher trying to get you to make you do something. And you may be a bit resistant. He has to sort of break you down and, and confront you and break your will and get you to make this decision. And so preaching becomes a kind of, evangelism becomes a kind of battle of wills where you, he's forcing you and compelling you and pressurizing you to, as it were, break down your hostility and surrender to God and, and give your life to Jesus. And that was his idea of the gospel. It was a total change in the history of the church. Nobody ever preached that way before. Um, and it came because of this very extreme doctrine of free will. So he would do anything to, as it were, get people to, to break down and surrender. He would work up as much excitement. He would, he would use a, uh, I think I could say he, he would use a little bit of trickery. He would pray for them in pe- for people in public, deliberately embarrassing them. He, w- he would say, well, there's Mr. So-and-so here. He's not saved, Lord. Please get him saved today. And he would pray for the guy in public and embarrass him as much as he can, trying to pressurize him into making this decision. There's a lot of pressure there. In other words, he preached by, and this is an important point, he preached by attacking the will. You have to will, whosoever will be saved. Such people love the word will. You have to attack the will. It's not, it's not the mind or the emotions. You've got to surrender. You've got to give in and make your decision that you're giving in to God. And so on. And uh, he would uh, introduce what were known as the new measures. He would get people to come forward and publicly say they were surrendering and so on. And so he pioneered a new style of what he called evangelism. It was very different from anything before. <coughs> before <coughs> Finney came along, there was no organized evangelism in this way. No, there were no crusades. There were no evangelistic committees. There was no advertising. Uh, and evangelism was not some sort of special thing that you did with spe- on special occasions. Evangelism was the regular life of the church. You may say, well, if this is what evangelism became in the 1820s, what was there before? Was there any evangelism before? Oh, yes, there was. Great revivals, mighty outpourings of the Spirit. Wesley and Whitfield could sometimes preach to 20,000. But it wasn't a kind of organized thing. There was no evangelistic organizations. They were just announced, John Wesley's preaching tomorrow morning at 6 o'clock. In the morning, he would get up before the people went to work. He's preaching tomorrow at 6 o'clock and 20,000 would be at Moorfields Common in, in the middle of London in days when it, when it was open field. And uh, 20,000 would be there. And uh, there was no organizing committee. There was nothing. There was just an announcement, John Wesley's preaching, finish. 
and 20,000 will be there, or 10,000 everywhere, among the coal miners in Kingswood in Bristol and among the common people of London on, on, uh, around what we now call Moorgate. In those days, it was a countryside, uh, and so on. And uh, Latimer in the 16th century, and uh, Bishop Hooper, these people. It was mainly, initially, it was mainly in buildings, but what happened in the 18th century is the churches wouldn't have these people. When Wesley came along, they, they refused to, to let them into the churches. So they said, well, if you won't let us speak to people in the churches, we'll, we'll speak outside, outside and call the people outside. And, and, Whit, and Wesley, on one occasion, went to Epworth, where his father was the vicar, or had been the vicar, and the current minister wouldn't let him in, and he went outside and he preached upon the tombstone of his own father outside the church. Thousands were there listening to him. And he said, well, if you only listen to us inside the church, we'll go outside the church. And it was a disgraceful thing to do in the 18th century to, to go and preach out, out in the open air was regarded as very scandalous behavior. But uh, that's what they did. They said, well, if you can't reach the people inside, we're going to reach them outside. And, uh, but they were, they were official ministers. They were ordained ministers of the Church of England. Wesley was a, an Anglican, so was Whitfield. All these guys were, were um, <coughs> ordained, most of these guys were ordained Anglicans. But uh, Fitney, as I say, changed everything. And um, his idea was that evangelism was something special. It was the ordinary life of the church, and then you do something special. When you gather people and you, you aggressively try to uh, pressurize them into making this decision. And the evangelist also became someone special. Nobody thought of evangelists uh, in this kind of way before again, the 1820s, and the word evangelist was not used at Wesley or Whitfield. The word wasn't used that way in those days. It became used that way after the 1820s. In Scripture, what is an evangelist in Scripture? Well, in Scripture, an evangelist is really a kind of delegate of the apostle. The apostle is, is, is doing the preaching, but he can't go everywhere, and he'll send certain of his workers. He'll send Epaphras or, or Timothy or Titus. He'll send these guys out, and uh, they will be the evangelists. They are extensions of the apostles' ministry. And they, they're saying, well, I can't go everywhere. You, you go and preach my message. You know what I preach like? Go and, go and preach it to them. Paul never went to Colossae. You read Colossians, and you find Paul acting as though it's his church. Hi, Paul, I'm your apostle. I'm writing to you, you Colossians. I'm thanking God for you. I'm really laboring and rejoicing in you. I want you to know how, how great a struggle I have for you. He's saying all those things. He never went to Colossae. Here's Paul saying, I have a great struggle for you to, make, to raise you up to maturity. He never went there, ever. He sent Epaphras to Colossae. And Epaphras founded the church at Colossae. Paul never went there. But uh, still, he regards it as his church. He says, I, I'm struggling for you and I toil and I, I have great concern for you and those at Laodicea and for all those who have not seen me face to face. Colossians chapter 2 verse 1. That they might be encouraged, that they might be rejoicing, they might be reaching all the riches of full assurance. He's, he's really concerned for them, praying for them, but he's actually never been there. And they've never seen him. We've not, we've not met each other face to face. He's doing it via Epaphras and uh, these other guys and Timothy and these Co-workers, they are the evangelists. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He's a brother and a faithful minister and fellow servant. I've sent him to you for this very purpose. You know, may know all about me and the work that's going on. Onesimus, he's, he's one of you. They, they will tell you of everything that's taken place. Aristarchus, Mark, Barnabas, Epaphras, who's one of you. He's the one that started the church in the first place. He's greeting you. He's with me here. He's greeting you. Luke, he's with me. Demas, 
All these guys are with, are with Paul, and they're the one, Colossae knows all these guys, all these evangelists go and they do this work and they extend the ministry of the Apostle Paul. Though Paul himself has never been to Colossae. So evangelists are as it were, delegates of apostles or maybe delegates of churches. You may say, what was Timothy once? Paul died. Paul, as it were, hands the work over to him in 2 Timothy. What, what would be his position once Paul wasn't there? Well, I suppose he would be uh, just a one-time colleague of Paul, now ministering among the churches where Paul had once uh, ministered. So evangelists were delegates, extenders of the work of churches, but uh, from Finney onward, he made uh, the evangelist a bit different. He is a, a lone ranger. He's got his own ministry. He's not necessarily attached to churches. He has an XYZ evangelistic organization, not a church, and he goes around. He's an independent c- category. The evangelist becomes someone separate and with, with his own special kind of ministry and so on. And the only thing he does is he gets people to make decisions. Well, all of that happened in the 1820s. And many, many things that we do come from it. And there was a, in my opinion, there was a lot of trickery in it. And there still is. You, it totally changed the nature of evangelism. Before Finney, evangelism was numerically successful. What I mean by that is is if you were preaching and, and 500 people came to tell you they were saved, they were still there 20 years later. I, I think of the, the Kirkushots revival in 20th of June, 1620, in, in a place called, in Scotland called Kirkushots, when a man called John Livingston was preaching. He wasn't a very great preacher. Uh, he, didn't, he was rather timid, actually. But um, on one particular occasion, he was preaching at a big communion season in Scottish Presbyterianism, and as he was preaching, the Holy Spirit came down and 500 people attributed their conversion to that one sermon. He, he wasn't a great preacher. and uh, he, In fact, he even wanted to run away. He didn't want to be the preacher on that occasion. But uh, he thought, well, I better, I better try, he said to himself. And he, they used to preach for about two hours in those days. And the first hour was just very ordinary. But when he began, when he came to the point where he was applying his message and pressing it upon the people, it was as if God came down and people began to weep and people, the people falling upon the ground. And 500 attributed the, the conversion to that one sermon and they called it the Kirkushots Revival on one day in June in 1620. But here's the point. 20 years later, all those people were still around. You, you could say, well, you know, I got saved on that one day. And they were still there. The 500 lasted for years. And, and, and they still saved people living for God 20, 30 years later when, as they became old. But in modern evangelism, nobody expects anything like that. The average evangelist today does not expect more than 1% of those who come forward in any way to survive. Um, the vast majority who walk forward, you will never see again. Um, and um, it changed the nature of, of numbers, you see. And uh, it, was, it seemed to be highly successful. And when uh, Finney was doing all this work in, in the New York area of America, at the tail end of these revival periods, and it was, it was quite successful, but it seemed to be very successful in that hundreds would come forward. He would pressurize people and bully them, say, come forward and, and do this and surrender, and he would get them to do it. And uh, hundreds would come forward. The vast majority of them would, would 
fall away. They were, they were not regenerate. They were just uh, making some sort of decision. But they were not regenerate. They were thinking, oh, well, I'll try it. Maybe it will work. That's, that's not faith. Um, and Finney himself, it carried on till about 1525. The revival carried on till about 1525. In about 1525, the revival ended. In fact, I, I would be willing to argue that Finney killed it. But um, it certainly ended in 1525. And for the rest of his life, he had no success whatsoever. While, while the revival was going on, he had some success. At the moment, the revival ended. And revival is a sovereign act of God. And Finney taught that you can do certain things and produce revival. Uh, indeed, the first, the first sentence of, of Finney's book on revival, he has, a, he has a book on how to hold a revival. And the first book, the first sentence of it is, revival is a work of repentance. Which I answer, that's nonsense. Repentance is something that we do. But for, for, for Finney, it's getting the people to repent and, and, and admit they're in a bad state and make decisions, surrender to God. It's a kind of holiness crusade. But that's not what revival meant before Finney. He's, he's changed the definition. And uh, his, his idea is you do certain things and you can guarantee revival. You can produce revival. And that's, that sort of kind of thing has gone on ever since. It, was, it seemed to be fairly successful in that it produces large numbers coming forward and surrendering. And uh, everybody loved it. You know, this revival. And look, look, look at the hundreds and thousands being saved. But actually, the statistics are... Uh, are very different, and, the, and the, the large numbers that come forward, in fact, don't change the situation at all. And although evangelism has gone on ever since that time with Finney's days, the, the truth of the matter is there's scarcely ever been a continental revival since Finney. I mean, every century had outpourings of the Spirit. The 16th century swept all over Europe. The 17th century, the 18th century went everywhere. The Moravians of Germany, the Wesleys transformed Britain. Jonathan Edwards transformed America. National revivals, changing whole nations. But once this idea came in that we can hold a revival, far from nations being reached, what actually happened is nations began to decline. There's never been a continent-wide Revival since, well, maybe you could argue since 1859, but certainly not after 1859. The 20th century has not seen this kind of revival. The 21st century so far has not seen this kind of revival. The latter period of the 19th century was one of steady decline and deterioration. Churches began to empty from the 1560s onwards. Far from this kind of evangelism winning whole nations, it has failed to do what we did do in the 16th century, in the 17th century, in the 18th century. It stopped after Finney. Far from Finney's methods reaching nations, they do not work at all, and you can get great evangelists. I, I think of certain evangelists I know, and you would know their name. I'm not sure that I should mention their names, but uh, I can think of well-known preachers, these big TV evangelists, where they can come into a city and get a million people. I have seen people in Uhuru Park, Nairobi, a million people in Uhuru Park. I have been in, in uh, Mumbai, India, where, the, where some guy's just been, whose name you would know, there's been a million people there at the meeting. But when you go to a, to a minister's fraternal and there's, and there's three or four hundred pastors there and you say, well, can, can, can you tell me how many people here today have had people added to their church since the visit of, of Dr. So-and-so? The answer is not one. And you say, no one, not one? There's not, there's not one single person here where someone's been added to your church? <coughs> <coughs> 
you could get such excitement. You can get a million people coming to the meeting, some of the big cities of the world. And yet, one month later, not one single person is added to any church anywhere. The entire number of people, the thousands, the hundreds of thousands are being reported as being saved. They, they are not in the churches one month later. <coughs> and that's a widespread phenomenon. It's, it's everywhere. And every evangelist knows it. No, no modern evangelist is expecting very much different. They, they know not, not 1% will in any way even be around. And uh, most of them will not be there next Sunday. You can, you can hold a crusade and 100 people will be, be, be profess conversion, but you do not see them on the following Sunday. They do not last more than a few days. Well, and then Charles Finney himself at the end of his life, was very disappointed with his converts. He said, my converts are a disgrace. If I had my time all, all over again, I would preach nothing but holiness. You see, you see the idea of follow-up came in at that point. If you are getting people to make a decision, well, they'll give up by next Sunday. So what you have to do is you have to do follow-up, which means you keep the pressure up. You go and get them and make them come to church. And the idea of fo- you didn't need to follow up people at the Kirkus Shots Revival. They, they were still there with no follow-up 20 years later. You didn't need to follow people up in the pre-Finney evangelism. No, no, one, no one was doing follow-up work after the day of Pentecost. They weren't going around saying, now, where are these 2,000 people that got baptized last Sunday? Let's follow them up. No one's doing that on the day of Pentecost. Didn't need to. They are regenerate. They're baptized of the Spirit. Their lives are changed. They'll never be the same. Whether you follow them up or not is irrelevant. Um, God follows them up. The Holy Spirit is indwelling them. You don't need to keep the pressure up to make them come to church now. But the notion of follow-up came in at that point. But it's a a means of uh, trying to keep the people there. Whatever method you use to get people, you need to use that same method to keep them. If you get them by something very sensational, you'll have to keep on doing the thing to keep them there. If you get them saying, we're praying that your businesses will be, will be successful, fine, but those guys will want their business to be always successful. The whole church becomes nothing but a praying for businesses cults. You have to keep on doing it. You, you, otherwise, they, well, it's all right, we stop doing it now, so, so I'll go somewhere else. Or I think of a woman I met in uh, Nairobi once and uh, very enthusiastic about uh, certain crusades. And I said to her, what, you know, what church do you go to? She said, oh, no, I don't go to church. I said, what do you mean? You just told me you got saved. You, you don't go to church? No, no, you don't get miracles at church. You, know, you get miracles in the big meetings. I, I, I want the miracles. I just, you don't get miracles in church, so I, I just wait for the evangelists to come. That's where you get the big miracles in the crowds. And I like, I like the miracles, she said. You don't get miracles in church. So I don't go to church. You don't get miracles there. <laughs> you see, if you have to sort of produce miracles to get the crowds, you've got to keep on producing miracles to keep the crowds. And anybody who's living for miracles will go somewhere because you know, these churches, they're not doing what I saw XYZ doing. There's surely something wrong with all of this. And it's never my real concern. I wouldn't be bothering with this except for the fact that it is not reaching nations. It is not the answer. And when a few years ago people like Louis Palau used to come to Britain, people used to say then, and I think think they were right, this is the last big crusade we'll ever see in Britain. And it's, it's turned out to be right. You don't get big crusades nowadays, do you? The, the Maurice Cirillo, the Louis Palau's, the, the Billy Graham's don't come anymore, do they? Um, it's not really worked, and it's not um, touched nations. So, 
after all that, which is a bit negative, what am I putting in its place? Well, I'll stop and let you have a cup of tea in a moment. But uh, the answer is, we go back to a pre-Finney message. We go back to a proclaiming where there's no manipulation. But we'll follow that up a little bit later. Maybe follow up's the wrong word, but we'll continue that. <laughs> in the next session. Let's have a break.